0: So our passage is taken from 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse number 6. Hear now the words of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And I would add, He alone... By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and the people that are listening and watching, they're your people. Father, I hope that they don't hear me today, but they hear the Holy Spirit speaking to them, convicting them of sin, prodding them to righteousness, and comforting them in the midst of their sorrow. Holy Spirit, please uh, knit this word to your people's hearts. Help them to see you, Jesus. And help them to walk in light of the truth that's in here today. Father, I pray again for the one that does not know you as Lord and personal Savior. May they hear these words and may they see their sin. But I pray more than anything they see the wonderful Savior that I know you to be. May you be beautiful and attractive to them. That's our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. So in the 19th century, a poet by the name of William Ernest Hens- Hensley Henleys uh, wrote a poem called Invictus, and most of us, or if not quite a few of us, have read this poem. And the word Invictus comes from Latin, and it simply means that uh, unconquerable is one of the terminologies from it. Well, Henry, Henley, when he wrote this, was really capturing the spirit of his age, this deep sense of individualism and this deep sense of autonomy. And the full scope of what he's writing is captured in the last two lines when, he wrote, when, he's, when it says this, I am the master of my faith, I am the captain of my soul, right?
1: Raw
0: this bravado and bluster. And um, what's interesting to me, though, isn't so much what the poem actually says. What's more interesting to me is when the poem was actually written. See, the poem was written during the Victorian era. Toward the end of the Victorian era, there was this great sense of uh, prosperity and safety that the people were enjoying, Even uh, outside of that, it was a great time for humanism. I mean, you had people like Nietzsche and Darwin uh, and their philosophies permeating everywhere. And so coupled Nietzsche and Darwin and their philosophy with a great sense of prosperity among the people, uh, Henley just completely forgot that Europe, even at that time, still was underneath the auspice of a Judeo-Christian value. And yet, he wrote a poem like this. And I can't help but wonder if Henley would have written that same poem in our time today. I can't help but wonder if Henry, Henley, sorry, would have uh, written that same, with that same bravado that we are the masters of our faith, the captains of our soul, in a time where we're afraid, in a time where our mortality is before us. I wonder if he would have written it during the first few days of 9-11, when we were cowering in our homes, wondering when the next attack was going to happen. I wonder if Henley would have written that same thing during the financial crash of 2007-2008. You know, I have this theory, and it goes a little something like this. It's easy for us to talk about us being the masters of our faith and the, and the captains of our soul when things are good, when things are going fantastic. But it gets a little bit difficult to talk about those things when you're in the midst of a pandemic such as us. When money, we can't throw money at it, we can't bomb it. All of our efforts up to this point, up to, this point to contain it, is being proved fruitless. And you can't help but wonder if Henley wasn't just acting out of this bluster and bravado because he was in a time of great plenty and not in want. And so here's the point that I want to make. Even on our best days, we are not the captain of our souls. We're not the masters of our faith. If anything, we're looking at ourselves now and we're saying, Woe is us. And what the Bible tells us, what John is telling us, is that we are a people who are in desperate need of an advocate. Because we can't advocate on our own, we're too weak and frail as a people. And so for the next few moments, I want to talk about this wonderful truth embedded in this text, and that is this, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. And in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the turmoil of the markets, in the midst of us as a people uh, overcome with fear and anxiety, we need to encourage one another and know that we have an advocate. More so than that, we as a group of people, we as a body, as we live life together, need to be reminded of why this is so important. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at the book of 1 John chapter 2 and this concept of Christ being our advocate. And I wanna, want us to remind ourselves of three things. First of all, who is our advocate, what our advocate does, and why it matters. Who is our advocate, what our advocate does, and why it matters. First of all, who is our advocate? Notice verse number one. John doesn't hide it from us. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John is very clear from the get-go that Jesus Christ the righteous is our advocate. Now, we read that text and you say, well, Pastor Dennis, of course, who else can it be? Well, um, the Bible tells us, or at least John tells us, that up to this point, the Holy Spirit was said to be our advocate. In fact, the term advocate is only used in the writings of John, and every time up to this point he talks about uh, us having an advocate, it was always the Holy Spirit. It was never Christ, but here we are now. Here we are now and John is telling us that we have this advocate and his name is Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what is John trying to teach us through this? Why is it so important that we know that Christ is our advocate? New Testament scholar Karen Joba found to be very helpful in answering this question. And she says this, that what's in view here is not only Christ's ability to be our advocate, but also his status. His status. Now, what is Job's talking about? Here's what she's talking about. If you read through the New Testament, you'll notice a whole bunch of names for Christ names and titles. He's the Logos, He's the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. He's the Alpha and Omega. Even in the book of 1 John, he's the one that's from the beginning, he's the eternal Son of God. And what all those names are trying to do is it's trying to let us know something about the character of Jesus Christ. It's trying to reveal an aspect of his character. And what Job's is trying to remind us is this, that when we hear that Christ is our advocate, we are being reminded of the the deep relationship we have with Christ. And the fact that because we are in union and communion with him, he serves as our advocate before the Father. And that this blessed truth means that we could be assured that our outcome will be good. It wasn't until my wife and I started having kids that I realized how amazing that reality is. So when my wife and I started having kids it was around about the time I went into seminary. And when, when I went into seminary, I started taking full classes. And so I would get up early in the morning around 4, 4.30. I would do a little schoolwork, and then I would go to work. And then I would work for a bit of time, and then I would, you know, uh, I'd go to classes and do work. Anyway, long story short, I would go home. And when I went home, my wife was exhausted because, you know, she had been home all day with uh, Maddie in Virginia at that time. And so she would give them to me, and then she would go get some rest. And, and they would start crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? Daddy is here, right? All problems are solved. And, uh, but, but I didn't know why they were crying, because I was trying to comfort them and do all these things. And my wife would say, oh, oh, uh, honey, that's, that's her, her hungry cry. Why don't you go get her something to eat? I was like, okay, I mean, you know, like, oh yeah, it's a hungry cry. I'd put her down, and then my wife would say, you know, she'd start crying again. And my wife would say, honey, honey, that, you have to burp her. That's I need a burp cry. And I was like, need a burp cry? Is that a thing? Okay. And so I would, I would, uh, you know, burp, burp the child, and then you know, uh, I would put her down, and I'd start doing something. She'd start crying again, and my wife would say, honey, honey, you got to change her. That's her. I, you know, I soiled my diaper. Cry, you know, and, and all of a sudden there were all these cries that I didn't know that my wife knew. I felt like I was in. Um, an episode of I Dream of Jeannie. Like, well, what do you mean, like, that's her hurt cry? And what do you mean that, that you know, that's her um, having an existential crisis because I can't find my pacifier cry? Uh, my wife just knew all these cries. And, and think about it, though. The reason why my wife knew all those cries was because she had a relationship with my children. She was with them all the time. She knew them and she understood them. And so when they were with me and I didn't know their cries, she advocated for them. In the same way John is telling us that Christ knows us. The reason why he is our advocate is because he knows our cries and he understands what we need. He understands that we are frail. As the psalmist says, that we are but dust. We are but nothing. And so he stands before the Father, interceding, advocating on our behalf because he's near to us. He's close to us. And here's the blessed reality of all of that. I love this. It would have been so easy. In fact, it would have been his prerogative if Christ died for us, on the cross, and said, you know what, that's it, I'm done. I've done, I've done the deed. I am now Lord, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And he went to heaven, and he just sat down on the right hand of the Father. But John is telling us, no, he didn't do just that. He did something even more glorious, if it was possible, he did it. And that is, he became our advocate before the Father. Beloved, you not only have a Savior, you not only have a Savior that propitiated your sins. Because the Bible says here in verse number two, He is the propitiation for our sins. He accomplished redemption, but He didn't do just that. John is saying He also advocates on our behalf in front of the Father. That's who He is. That's His status. His advocate, the fact that He's in union and communion with us that makes all of this eminently possible but not only that not only do we see who this advocate is but the Bible also says John also forces us to see what our advocate does now I have to tell you I was reading this text and I was overcome with emotion because I thought to myself wait a minute I'm so sinful I need two advocates right one is the Holy Spirit inside of me who is who is prodding me to righteousness right? Convicting me of sin, comforting me. But at the same time, I have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous. Am I really that sinful? My wife is looking at me, yes. Yes, you are, right? Of course I am. We all are. We all are. Now, what does it mean that Christ is our advocate? What does that mean? What does he does? What what is it that he does for us. Uniquely, that the Holy Spirit in Scripture is said not not to do. Well, the best illustration of this is found in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, more specifically, in Zechariah's fourth vision. And and if you read Zechariah's fourth vision, it plays out like a movie, right? And there are three actors. The first actor is the righteous angel of the Lord, who stands in judgment in the proceedings of this heavenly court. And the second actor is Joshua, the high priest. And he's clothed in filthy rags, silenced by the weight and shame of his sin. And then the third actor is Satan. And as the book of Revelation tells us, he's before the throne of God daily, day in, day out, accusing Joshua sin. And here's the thing that's even more scary. Satan has cause. Because the Bible says that there are three things that are in Satan's favor. The first is this, the charges are completely accurate. The Bible says in Romans 3 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The charges against us are accurate. Not only that, The Bible also tells us that the sinner has no excuse. The glory of God is seen. And so he has no excuse for why he doesn't repent. But the last is this. The guilty must be punished. And that's Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. And here it is. The sinner stands condemned and guilty. And in a plot twist for the ages the judge that's presiding over the procedure uh, over the whole proceedings he stops being a judge and at the same time or he con- he continues being a judge but at the same time he turns into an advocate and he says that's enough the charges have been paid for this one is forgiven, and he rebukes the devil. I love what Martin Luther says in A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. And though this world, with devils failed, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Let that sink in for a moment. That when you're being accused as a sinner deserving death, God steps in and one little word fails Satan. Our advocate speaks one word and we are forgiven and healed and clothed by the righteousness of Christ. What a glorious, wonderful Savior. This is what you and I have access to, and we need to remind each other of this, that we have a shared advocate before the Father. Now, it would be pastoral malpractice if I didn't mention a philosophy in this text that is pervasive in our culture today, and that is universalism. There's many people that come to this text, and in this text they see John saying that at some point everyone is going to be redeemed and everyone's going to be saved. Now before I explain why that's not the case, let me say this. I am not approaching this as someone who is this, you know, this pastor who... Kind of knows this theology that's giving everyone the answers of what they're supposed to know. This doctrine hits home, and here's why. To the best of my knowledge, my father, when he died, did not know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. To the best of my knowledge. And so, if scripture is correct, and I believe it is, my father entered into eternity not knowing Christ. So I promise you, if anyone wants the doctrine of universalism to be real, it's me. If anyone wants everyone to be able to go to heaven, it's me. But here's the thing. This text does not teach that. Notice what John says in verse number one. He says, my Little children, he's talking about the children of faith. He's talking about the children who have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you. Who's the you? The little children. So that you, the little children, may not sin. But if anyone, the anyone is referring back to the little children, the children of faith, if any anyone of you sin. We, the people of faith, have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. That's the sins of the little children. And not for ours, again, ours, but also the sins of the whole world. So within the context of this passage, the whole world is talking about the community of faith. Those that have come to trust Christ... He is your advocate uniquely. Now, let me say this. If you're watching this and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, you don't have to be excluded. He wants to be your advocate, but you must come to him in humility. You must come to him humbled, asking him to be your advocate. Asking him to be the captain of your soul. Because here's the deal. To be the captain of your soul, to be the master of your faith, is a godlike task that we cannot handle. Remember the psalmist says that the Lord knoweth our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. We are incapable. And the events of the past two weeks and maybe how long in the future will play out. You are not in control of your life. You could not travel freely the way you want to right now. The wealth that you had in the bank is significantly lower than what it was even a month ago. And here you are, God is stripping down all of our defenses to show us that the God like task of captaining our souls belongs to Him and not us. So if you don't know Christ, stop being God, stop playing God in your life. Come to Him. Trust Him. Let Him be the captain of your soul. So when we read texts like this, we don't have to MacGyver that everyone's going to be saved and do violence to the text of Scripture. We can come before the Lord our God and receive uh, the mercy and grace and the propitiation so that He might be our advocate, so that He alone can be our advocate. But not only that, not only do we see what our advocate does, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, notice verse number three on down. The text says this, And by this we know that we have known him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are, no, we are in him. What is John talking about? Why does all of this matter? Well, the first thing John is saying is that when we have this sheer advocate, all of us, we have an assurance. We have this wonderful assurance. That's why he says in verse number three, by this we know that we have known him. John is saying, listen, that first know is cognitive knowledge. How do we cognitively know that we know Him, meaning experience Him, experience what it means to be in union and communion with Him. How do we know that? Well, we know that by keeping His commandments and being in fellowship with Him, John says. And listen, we live in a time of unprecedented insecurities. I mean, people are wondering if they're going to have a job that this... This virus, what it's gonna do. And one of the things that's interesting to me that this virus has done is how it's taken down our cultural idols. You know, our idol of sports, our idol of travel and visiting new places, our idols at times of of the gambling industry and the entertainment industry. How this virus has put all of that to a stop. Now listen, I'm not saying those things in their, perpo- uh, in their particular order isn't a good. But what I'm saying is that we as a society have turned those things into an idol. And now we see them all being stripped down. And here's what's interesting to me. There's one idol that even touches us in the Christian community. And it's the idol of security. Boy, we love feeling secure. We love to know that we have a secure job and a secure income and a secure home and a secure family and on and on and on. And God is saying that's not where your security lies. That's not where your assurance lies. It lies in the fact that you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And because of that, we know this. I've read so many people say, How bad is this going to get? Let's pray that God stays his hand. Yes, let's pray. But I can tell you this no matter how bad it gets, God will mitigate his wrath toward us. It's not going to get so bad that we are going to be completely destroyed. And you might say, Dennis, how do you know God is going to mitigate his wrath toward his people? Because I know this, and Scripture teaches this, that he already poured out the full weight and wrath upon Christ. And because Christ has now bared that burden completely and totally, you and I no longer have to fear the full wrath of God. We have the assurance that if we are in Christ, we might be impacted by the wrath, but we're not the objects of the wrath. No longer, Meredith Klein said, are we sinners in the hands of an angry God, but sinners in the pierced hands of a loving, wonderful Savior. That's the beauty of the gospel, that you and I have this assurance, and it is sure, it is sure. Last thing I want to show you, is that because we have this assurance, Verse 3 through 5, verse number 6 tells us that we could begin to walk like Christ. Notice in verse number 6, he says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The he there is Christ. That because we have this advocate, we can walk like Christ in the boldness of Christ. So how did Christ walk? Well, the first thing we see in terms of how Christ walked is Christ walked with a radical love and generosity toward others. Beloved, if you're in the Christian community, this is our time to walk with the same radical love and generosity and compassion towards all those around us. We're not hoarders. We're givers. Now, I'm not saying prepare. Some of you are going to hear, oh, Pastor Dennis is telling me don't prepare. No, 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 that's not what I'm telling you. But I'm telling you at the same time, Don't hoard and keep everything to yourself. Look for ways to give and to be a blessing to others. This is our time to give more. This is our time to pray more. This is our time to be in tune to the needs of others like Christ. Like Christ, we're going to be in tune to the needs of others. Second of all, this is our opportunity for profound grace. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that that happens when you bring families together in a home and you're homeschooling, it's, it, let's, just, let's just be honest, there's discord. There's discord. And so what is John saying? How should we walk like Christ walked? Well, we should show each other grace. This is not the time for us to be fighting and bickering with one another. This is a time for, for us to show each other profound grace. That we need to be more forgiving in a time of crisis. This is a unique time. So why not take the moment to show unique grace? You know, I love Christmas time because it appears that everybody's a little nicer to each other during Christmas. Well, can I tell you, we need to be a little nicer to each other during this time as well. We need to show each other profound grace. Stop the fighting and the yelling and the bickering. We need to give each other grace because the moment requires extra of it. Lastly, it gives us a boldness and confidence. That's how Christ walked. You know, I love the story of Jesus in the boat in the storm. Because the Bible says he's sleeping. And his, his disciples, who are master fishermen, they're freaking out. This isn't a normal storm. They've seen all kinds of storms. But this storm is pretty bad. And they run to him and they say, hey, master, why are you sleeping? We're going to perish. And I'm like, why did Jesus was just sleeping? Like, he's just sleeping. Doesn't he care? I'm with the disciples on this. Why aren't you waking up and doing something? And and just recently it dawned on me because of this. Jesus knows at the end that he wins. See, if you know how you're going to die, when you're going to die, and you know that it's going to be all right, then you kinda walk with some boldness. You kinda put your foot down. And beloved, let me tell you something. We as Christians, we know how this story ends. Jesus wins. And it doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what virus comes. It doesn't matter what situation comes. We have the confidence of knowing that we have an advocate. I love what Paul says in Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how could he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring my charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed intercedes for us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for our sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, no, no. They should highlight it and bold it in our Bibles. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or to come or powers or height or death or anything else will ever do what separate us from the love of jesus christ the love of our god that's found in him this is true for us now because we have an advocate with the father and his name is jesus christ the righteous Brethren, let us encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you live to make intercession for us, that you are our advocate, and we can rest and trust in that. Lord Jesus, may your spirit, may your power reign and rule in the hearts and minds of your people. Let us walk with extra love and compassion, extra grace. And Lord, may, us, may we walk with extra boldness because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.